Uh, I've turned on my MP3 recorder because I have a podcast channel. Uh, ooh, yes. I have a website, indeed, where you can get to my podcast channel from, and it's got free papers and a YouTube channel and a Twitter feed and a podcast thingy and a... And so on. So you might uh, find that... You, there's another chair here, if anyone wants uh, a could chair. Yeah, you could uh, have an extra chair. <laughs> So I'm going to sit here. Right. Oh, well, I, thank you very much. I, I hope I uh, bring uh, blessings uh, to you as well in what I've prepared uh, to say. Will's asked me to speak on the theme of uh, flourishing as a Christian at university and particularly um, approaching uh, academic study um, from a Christian viewpoint, although I'll do set that in a bit of a, a broader context than, than merely that. Um, so I bring you uh, glad tidings of great joy, which is that following Jesus Christ uh, should make you a better student than you would otherwise be, uh, and that basically entails because he will inspire you to work harder than you otherwise would. So, um, sorry about that. Um, <laughs> but I hope to uh, give you an inspiring vision uh, of why that is the case. But I'm going to start off by, by talking about the, the, the theme of, of spirituality um, and go from there. It's been one of my research areas. I'm a um, philosopher by academic background training and uh, I now work part-time with um, the Demaris Trust in Southampton, who are a Christian educational charity. I work part-time with a Christian university college in Norway, doing um, R&D and course development and bits of teaching here and there, and um, just generally working as a sort of freelance uh, Christian apologist uh, uh, around the place. And one of my, my research topics recently, as I say, has been this, this theme of spirituality, particularly I started off thinking about it in terms of British schools because the government now say that all schools in the country have to include spiritual education woven throughout the entire fabric of what they do. And um, then you look to the uh, government advice as to what they mean by that uh, and you soon realise why nobody's really doing it because the government definition of what counts as spirituality um, is so vague as to be completely unimplementable, unmeasurable um, and impracticable. So I started uh, thinking, well, what, what is this vague spirituality uh, all about? And um, I, I had some thoughts. I thought, wow, I've, I've got some really good thoughts about this. And then I realised that the Bible got there before me. So I'll give you the thoughts and then I'll show you why the, why the Bible got there before me. Um, so I reckoned that spirituality's <coughs> got something to do with relationships. It's about how you relate to everything. To yourself, to other people, the world around you, and to whatever you conceive of ultimate reality being obviously for Christians that's God um, for Hindus the pantheistic one um, for atheists um, the laws of physics or matter um, and so on so people will cash this out in different ways in their different spiritualities but it's clearly about relationships and it's about how you relate to reality through the combination of the integration of how you 
think about things, what you think is true and false about reality, your world view in philosophical terms, the um, the affections and commitments and willings towards reality that you make with your heart and how that combination leads you to act and behave in the world. So to betray my Baptist roots, three points all beginning with the same letter, it's the combination of your head and your heart and your hands, which makes it a bit more memorable. And I think that's a, a really useful uh, schema, and I've been having fun doing things like applying that to um, doing film analysis in media studies. How do films communicate the spirituality of the filmmakers by looking at the characters, thinking what do they think is true, you know, what are their commitments, what are they prepared to do to overcome the, the, the uh, frustrations put in front of the, the reaching of the plot MacGuffin that the scriptwriter has put there, uh, and so on. Um, so that's been fun. But, um, of course, I didn't get here first. So I, I realised very soon, of course, that when Jesus was asked the question about uh, the greatest commandment and what is the, the greatest commandment, and uh, he uh, says uh, the most important one, answer Jesus, is this. Hear, Israel, the Lord, our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all of your soul and with all of your mind and with all of your strength. Right, okay, so um, there's a little bit of translation needs doing here because our, our terminology changes over, over time. Um, so when people back then talked about the heart, they didn't, as we do in modern pop culture, just mean how you feel soppy about people. Oh, I really love chips, whatever, you know, <laughs> with my heart. Yeah, <laughs> chips are great. Um, their heart uh, included... Um, your your willing, your your commitments to things, um, as well as your sort of affections uh, towards things, and indeed could be used to 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 include to be just sort of talking about the the self, um, the soul seems to be something like that that part of you that has the ability to relate to God, um, and then they talk about your mind. You think about things and with all your strength i.e. what you do so basically it's worded in slightly different ways in the different synoptics and they're all referencing uh, back to a passage in Deuteronomy as well but I think it basically cashes out uh, as Jesus saying well the most important thing in life is to love God with the combination of your head and your heart and your hands with everything you are and the way that that integrates together um, and in that context then love your neighbour as yourself um, so I think my, my definition of spirituality is on track because that's the way that God has built us in his image. That's how we, we function as human beings. We have beliefs about things being true and false and we have attitudes and make commitments and we will and, that, uh, and we behave in the world and those reinforce one another or uh, pull against one another depending upon how sort of integrated and consistent we're being as a person. Um, so, you know, sin is knowing that something's wrong and uh, desiring to do it anyway and then acting on that and doing it anyway and um, knowing that, that sense of, of uh, being pulled in different directions in yourself through that. Um, so it applies to the experience. When Peter um, does the first sermon just after Pentecost, if, uh, I jump ahead to uh, this is Acts... <coughs> Um, Acts chapter 2 
Uh, he's done the first sermon in Pentecost, and the crowd respond. Uh, verse 37. Uh, when the people heard this, he's preaching about uh, Jesus, and crucifixion and the resurrection. They were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, brothers, what shall we do? So they heard some information about something that convinced them something was true. They responded with their hearts and they were cut to the heart about it. And they said, what should this lead us to do in response? And once you have this sort of head, heart, hand scheme in mind, you see it popping up all over the place. Uh, One last New Testament passage and uh, we'll have a longer Old Testament passage later on, from beginning of the book of Daniel, is uh, from Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, where Paul says, Therefore, in light of talking about uh, the love of God in Christ, he says, Therefore I urge you, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, to offer yourselves as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God, This is your spiritual act of worship. Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world. That's the world in the sense of the order of things that is opposed to God's rule. Do not be conformed to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good pleasing and perfect will what's good to do you'll be able to test to think what's the right thing to do and see yeah that's the right thing to do i'm going to do it because i'm committed to doing that out of my love for god because he loved me so that works so you have this this structure different uh, people will cash out those uh, areas of spirituality in different ways there'll be overlaps there'll be differences um, a Christian spirituality is a, a spirituality of, of loving God with all of your self and na- neighbour as self uh, through the context of, of centering your, your life on, on Jesus and following him as his disciple um, having him be the one who ultimately uh, determines what you think is true and what you are committed to and what you do uh, on the basis of that um, and as I say, I think that's that's useful in lots of realms of thinking. But particularly when it comes to, to university, this is where I get to do the I was young once bit. Because um, I was, uh, surprisingly. Um, someone who, you know, who went through the, the whole maturation experience of going off to university. And um, I mean, I came from a, a, a Christian home by background. Um, but... Um, that doesn't preclude one and shouldn't preclude one from from going through that whole thinking do i believe this for myself do i own this for myself am i just adopting these beliefs because of my family background where i've come from or this is this am i actually committed to this being part of who i am as i go forward in life uh, more as a sort of adult individual standing on my own two two legs and university is a is a great uh, time of of life where that whole maturation process spiritually uh, is very important Uh, and university is obviously going to be a time and i think should be a time of 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 questioning of thinking about your spirituality uh, in all of those areas of thinking what do i really think 
is true and, and false about reality and why um, and why is that why should I believe that rather than the other options that are out there on the table what am I really wanting to be someone who's committed to uh, what what am I going to affirm with my heart who, who am I going to let influence me who am I trying to to influence in that way what am I doing with my my time and my money and my talents and so on uh, and am I, am I being consistent in who I am in those areas or at least am I aiming in my desire to follow Christ at getting more consistent uh, as I follow him um, year by year decade by decade as I go forward in life um, so there will be pressures within the university experience um, that if met knowingly and head on I think can act as a, a sort of refiner's fire to uh, helping us sort out um, who we are, what kind of person we're, we're going to be in, in, in our spirituality as we think about things and part of that will be the, the academic experience um, which will align with different elements of our spirituality depending a bit on what subject we're doing you know there are some subjects i mean if you go like i did and you go and study philosophy you will be very explicitly dumped into a head-on confrontation on what do you believe about whether or not there's a god and why you should think that you know you probably don't get dumped into that conversation if you're studying oceanography okay but there will be assumptions made about the nature of reality, about how one should go about studying reality, uh, about what is true, about how you should pursue truth, what you should do with it, um, what kind of values you adopt uh, in academia, uh, in the application of, of knowledge gained through science or whatever. There'll be assumptions about that. <coughs> the nature of people as you're studying economics or healthcare or, or all sorts of things will raise uh, issues in, in various areas of spirituality um, and that's that's as it, as it should be I think really, I, I think you just um, you meet that challenge head on and knowing it's going to be there and kind of um, uh, revel in going through that process and the, the excitement of of working out for yourself uh, who you are in those areas um, and, and do it um, with wisdom <laughs> um, knowing that you're doing this rather, rather than not realising that you're meeting these challenges if you don't realise that your academic subjects might be based upon assumptions about reality that are at odds with the assumptions that you're Christian life makes you'll very soon find yourself in a, in a place of tension uh, between those two that will be all the worse for the fact that you haven't actually thought about it much better to have noticed that from day one and to have been thinking uh, about it uh, and in a sense therefore to have been thinking about your subject at a deeper level perhaps than people from a spirituality that aligns more closely 
with the world's way of looking at things. Um, I think uh, given the, the state of the world and the kind of culture that we live in and what Christianity is, we're going to be people who quite often find a tension between um, our head and hearts, our hands, and what the world wants us to do with our head and our hearts and our hands. You know, uh, and I'm not just talking about the when you go to university, don't have sex, don't get drunk, and don't take drugs. Talk because I'm not doing that talk. You see. So, <laughs> so let me read you a bedtime story uh, from the book of Daniel. <coughs> Which I think is a fascinating book to. <laughs> oh, ouch! <laughs> yeah, they're already comfy under the under the blanket there. <laughs> now, um, I, one of the things I do at Highfield uh, Church is I, I contribute um, and I help run the uh, the Reasonable Faith course um, along with uh, Keith Fox, who some of you might know from the the University Sciences, and uh, Pete May. And uh, a couple of weeks ago, um, we've been going this term through the um, the Channel 5, the Bible series. And um, I had the pleasure of researching and giving a, a talk a few weeks ago on the book of Daniel, on the historicity of the book of Daniel, and going through the story presented in Daniel, and then looking at things like, and here's the Babylonian cuneiform archives from the palace mentioning the same person, and the fact that the king was giving him a certain amount of oil every day, and, you know, here's so-and-so, and here's that building, and oh, it was fun. So you can go onto the podcast, and, and um, you don't get the pretty pictures uh, from the PowerPoint, but uh, it, it's uh, fun stuff. But particularly... Um, the beginning of the book of Daniel, I think, it has fascinating parallels with um, the university experience in our culture and uh, meeting it with open eyes, as it were. So I'll read you this story and I'll, I'll give some commentary along the way and then I'll just open up the floor uh, for any questions or discussion about spirituality and the university experience and um, philosophy and all that. So, in the third year of the reign of King Jehoiakim of Judah, King Nebuchadnezzar, there's some great names for me to pronounce in this, King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon came to Jerusalem and besieged it. The Lord let King Jehoiakim of Judah fall into his power, as well as some of the vessels of the house of God. These he brought to the land of Shinar and placed the vessels in the treasury of his gods. Like, boo. Yeah. Well done. <laughs> then the king commanded his palace master, Ashpenaz, to bring some of the Israelites of the royal family and of the nobility, young men without physical defect and handsome, versed in every branch of wisdom, <laughs> endowed with knowledge and insight, and competent to serve in the king's palace. They were to be taught the literature and language of the Chaldeans, of the, of the Babylonians. So these young guys are going to be taken from Israel, from Jerusalem, sent to a foreign land in a foreign culture to learn their way of thinking about the world and of structuring government and things based upon their gods who have apparently just conquered their god and nicked stuff from his house to put in their treasury. We're bigger than you, okay? The king 
assigned them a daily portion of the royal rations of food and wine. So their their hall of residence had catering. <laughs> they were to be educated for three years, though they're clearly doing a Bachelor of Arts degree. So that at the end of that time, they could be stationed in the king's court. So the, the aim of this education is for them to serve the king of Babylon. Um, just like the government we have today thinks the aim of your education is to make money for the economy. Um, that's what they think. <laughs> Clearly. <laughs> Ooh. Uh, among them were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael and Azariah from the tribe of Judah. The palace master gave them other names. Uh, and this is significant because these, these Jewish names reflect their understanding of, of God. And they're given Babylonian names that reflect Babylonian understanding of reality, of their gods. So they're almost sort of being sent to re-education camp, being brainwashed, uh, rather. Daniel was called, called Belteshazzar. Hananiah he called Shadrach. Mishael he called Meshach. And Azariah he called Abednego. But Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the royal rations of food and wine. Daniel is going to, into this with his eyes open, he's committed to his background, and he decides to draw a line in the sand, as it were. And a part of this would undoubtedly be over the fact that you know, the Babylonians aren't going to be worrying too much about Old Testament food laws in what they, they feed them. So, you know, you know, will the king be serving me kosher food this evening? Um, the king's probably not worrying about this. But also, given the importance of table fellowship in the ancient world, the, the, the king is offering him food from his table. If you accept that food, you're basically saying, thank you very much for your hospitality. I am honour bound to, to serve you. Now, God allowed Daniel to receive favour and compassion from the palace master. The palace master said to Daniel, oh, I'm afraid of my lord and the king, and he has appointed your food and your drink. If he should see you in poorer condition than the other young men of your own age, you'd endanger my head with the king. Then Daniel asked the guard whom the palace master had appointed over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Uzziah, Please test your servants for ten days. Let us be given vegetables to eat and water to drink. You can then compare our appearance with the appearance of the young men who eat the royal rations and deal with your servants according to what you observe. Okay, so we're not going to stick, stick up a big, big stink. Let's just, let's try a test. Let's just try it for a bit. This won't endanger your head with the king because if it doesn't work, then, you know, no harm, no foul. But let's just try things from my point of view and see how it works out. But notice he doesn't go up to the palace minister and says, oh, I'm, you know, I'm worried about this food. Um, because it says here uh, in Leviticus um, that the Lord says that I should do this. Um, because that probably wouldn't cut much mustard with the, the palace master. Um, because that source of authority is not one that he re would recognise. So the source of authority that Daniel goes to is, let's do an empirical test. Let's use a source of authority that you recognise that I think I can use to back up my way of approaching this. I think this is a very canny way of thinking about when Christians sometimes have a different viewpoint on things, but um, in terms of getting into an academic debate or argument about it, it of course 
cuts no mustard to go the long route of saying, well, I think of things this way because it says here in you, in Matthew chapter 12 or whatever. Um, but if you can argue on on neutral territory, as it were, for approaching things in your way, so much the better. At the end of the ten days, it was observed that they appeared better and fatter than all of the young men who'd been eating the royal rations. So the guard continued to withdraw their royal rations and the wine they were to drink and gave them vegetables. To these four young men, God gave knowledge and skill in every aspect of literature and wisdom. Daniel also had insight into visions and dreams. And at the end of the time the king had set for them to be brought in, the palace master brought them into the presence of Nebuchadnezzar, and the king spoke with them. So this is their final viva for their exam. And among them all, no one was found to compare with Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Isaiah. Therefore they were stationed in the king's court. In every matter of wisdom and understanding concerning which the king inquired of them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters of his whole kingdom. And Daniel continued there until the first year of King Cyrus, which is another story. Um, so, you know, I think that, that, that story, and you can, you can read on about the, the adventures that they have, um, holds a lot of wisdom um, for the Christian going off to, to university um, with their eyes open um, being um, being wise about the fact that our our worldview and our, our heart commitments and our actions might might differ from those that the, the world or our um, field of studies or whatever want us to adopt um, but that we're not going to get anywhere in that environment simply by sort of saying well I don't think things that way and what about what it says in Genesis 12 you know, why do I keep going to chapter 12 I don't know, the Romans 12 um, uh, but that there are um, there are subtler and wiser ways of uh, arguing for a different viewpoint, academically legit- legitimate ways of arguing for a different viewpoint when that, when that needs to be done um, anyway, that's probably enough uh, story and uh, concepts dropped uh, into the room from me. So I, I turn the floor over to you for any uh, points of question or, or discussion or issues you'd like to, to raise in this whole area and see if we can say anything further of use between us. So what's the best way to go about it when you're in your kind of your <coughs> philosophy mm. uh, lecture? Or I, d- I don't know, like my subject doesn't really kind of have that issue mm. uh, where you're kind of worldview the challenged. But how would you, what's the best way to respond mm. when you know like your lecturer and possibly your other classmates are, are kind of like expounding this theory, mm. but it just doesn't match up with what you believe, but it's like academically proven maybe, and is like par for the course if you like, what's the best way to kind of go about dealing with that? Yeah. Well, if it, if it were actually proven, of course, then that would well, mean yeah. that, that Christianity was wrong. Um, yeah, <laughs> so I should change... Yeah. Taken, taken as, as, as... This is just sort of the way things are seen. Um, I think, actually, that the, the more likely a, a subject is to drop you directly into the conversation about one of those fundamental issues, 
the more likely it is to be open to the fact that there's legitimacy in a range of viewpoints on the issues. So philosophy directly raises the questions like, is there a God? Does evil disprove God? Um, does Is religious experience real or, or not? And so on. Um, but then in, the, in, in philosophy contemporaneously and historically, you have a whole range of, of viewpoints. And the, the academically legitimate thing to do is to say, well, here's my view and I'm going to argue it Thus, here's my argument, or here's so-and-so's argument for or against this view, uh, which I show I understand, and then I critique by saying, well, I think, you know, premise three is wrong for the following reasons, and I quote so-and-so and reference the book, and you just, you just enter into into the debate, um, uh, taking the cudgels for, you, for your side. Um, I think it's actually possibly a harder thing when your subject might make assumptions about our view of reality or how we go about interacting with reality and so on that are in tension with the Christian way of looking at things but it, but it's not assumed that people are going to debate and discuss those assumptions it's just assumed that everyone will accept those assumptions and off we go um, so I think within 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 historical sciences within our origins sciences for example um the science will very often be defined in um, in naturalistic terms, um, if if not uh, in terms of saying um, you know science is saying naturalism is true and there's no god. At least in terms of saying the way to do science is to do it as if there's no god and naturalism is true. Uh, we define science in a methodologically naturalistic way, as it's, it's called. Um, and that's very, very much often just not even on the table for discussion. It's just like you, you will assume this. This is I'm telling you what science is now. Now go away and be a scientist. Whereas the interesting thing is that if you actually look at the, the discussion within philosophy of science about such issues of how you define science and should should science follow methodological naturalism as a rule and things, you'll find that even a number of contemporary atheist philosophers of science say. That's a really bad way of defining science, and we shouldn't define it that way. So what does methodological naturalism mean? Um, so uh, naturalism is the idea that uh, materialism is true, nature is all there is, there's nothing supernatural. Um, and a move is often made to say, well, well science it doesn't have a stake in thing. Now, that's for the philosophers, but when we do science... We do it as if naturalism were true, as a, as a methodological approach. Our approach, we make the assumption that nothing supernatural causes anything, that we don't mention anything like God doing a miracle in order to explain anything when we do science, because otherwise that's not science, you see. This is just by definition. Um, so, um, when you're asking a question like, you know, how did life begin? And you might look at and understand the various different theories that are, that are proposed about how life begins. Um, but the one thing you're meant not to say is, well, I think God did it. Because you know, then, oh, suddenly you stop doing science, you see. <coughs> okay. Well, 
Mm. But interestingly, there are atheist philosophers of science who would say this this idea of methodological naturalism as just sort of defining how we should understand science as being is actually a really bad idea, because and here's the here's I think the most interesting argument. Um, surely, if science is anything, it should be a search for what's true about reality, about physical reality. Now, of course, if there isn't a God, and He's never done it, or, or He's never done anything miraculous in history, then approaching understanding that history of reality on the assumption that there's no God, or if there is, He's never done anything, well, that will never mislead you. That will never mislead you from the truth about reality. But suppose there is a God, and that he has done something miraculous in history, and you approach it with the assumption that you must never mention that. Well, then you're doing, you're doing science according to a rule that will stop you ever knowing the truth about reality. Potentially. So to define science in a way that at least potentially, stops you pursuing what's true about reality seems an odd way of going about doing science. Say some atheist philosophers of science, like um, Bradley Monton or Michael Roos. So, um, that's that's where, just as an example of, here is an assumption made at an academic level about how you should go about understanding your discipline, or the kind of things that you might mention in understanding reality. Um, And when you open up the debate about it, there's a very interesting debate to be had there, um, but if it's just presented as a fait accompli of sort of, you know, okay, for, you know, life science is 101, here's what science is, now go away and write your papers. You know, that, that's, that's actually more, more difficult than in, than in a, a discipline like philosophy where everyone says, now what do you think? And there's lots of different opinions, argue for what you, whatever you like. And the main thing is how you go about arguing it. Um, whereas if you actually challenge an assumption like methodological naturalism within science, that can get you into very hot water because it's, it's, that's not the done thing to, to, to challenge an assumption like that. But if you do, and you might not want to, but if you do, um, you know, it would be much better to challenge it by quoting an atheist philosopher of science who challenges it than by saying, well, I want to challenge that because of the way I interpret the first three chapters of Genesis. <laughs> you see? Um, there are ways and ways of going about looking at those uh, those issues. Um, so yeah, I think whatever subject it, it is, it's actually probably the, the assumptions that you're not encouraged to think about that are potentially the, the more difficult to deal with than in subjects that encourage you to um, sort of argue about fundamental issues. Um, so I actually found a sort of great deal of freedom in studying philosophy, even if even if my philosophy professor from the front was clearly kind of antagonistic, often he would be giving lectures, helping me to understand the thinking of a philosopher who was a theist. You know, you've got your atheist philosophy professor helping you understand Descartes or Aristotle or Kant or... Berkeley or John Locke or you know like oh hang on a minute they're all Christians or theists at least or 
that's interesting, you know. So, <laughs> yeah. Yes. Um, well, in the terms that I've defined spirituality, I, I think though people who who think that there's nothing more to a, a person than than the physical level, um, they will still talk about, often talk about the mind or thinking about things and so on. They'll just have the assumption that it must ultimately you must be able to to explain all of. The, whatever that is, in purely physical terms, although we can't do it yet. Just give us enough time and we'll get there because that must be how reality is because we make this prior assumption that that's the only kind of reality there could be. We assume that nothing supernatural can be real. Therefore, all the answers must fit in our naturalistic box, even if we don't have them yet. You know, um, And just because we haven't got all the answers yet is is, is no reason to jump into some mumbo-jumbo supernaturalistic view of things and say, no, I think people really have souls, or, you know. Um, yeah. Um, but, you know, who who has the right burden of proof there? If you actually look in the, the discussion in, again, this wee area of philosophy of mind, um, yes, the majority of contemporary philosophers are, are, are materialists or physicalists, but there's something of a return towards uh, what's called a dualistic view of people, the idea that there really are more to you than the physical self. Um, there's a growing frustration with the inability of, of, of physical or scientific descriptions to actually capture what's kind of obviously true about the fact that we have experiences, we have thoughts about things, we have feelings and, and, and so on. Um, I'm just reading today, I've just got through the post... Um, British philosopher, atheist philosopher called uh, Mary Midgley um, and her new book um, and I'm not going to remember the, the title off the top of my head but it's about is, is this basically about is the self real and she's saying look at all these contemporary scientists who are starting to say that you don't have a self there isn't really a you that's just an illusion you've been tricked into thinking that you're real Who's been tricked into thinking I'm real? She's asking. So this is, she's saying this is obvious baloney. But but people feel they have to go there because they they they, they feel um, that um, they can't fit our traditional understanding of ourselves into a materialist view, and they're so committed to the materialist view that they, they they're prepared to say things like. You're, you know, you're nothing but a pack of neurons. You don't actually have thoughts about things. I've just just read Alex Rosenberg's um, book, An Atheist Guide to Reality, um, and in that book, Alex Rosenberg, who's an atheist uh, philosopher of science and one of the sort of new atheist crowd, a he argues that it's it's completely obvious and, and you cannot doubt the fact that you have thoughts about things. You know, I'm thinking about Paris. Think about Paris, everyone. Okay, we're thinking. We can't deny that. 
But he also says it's not possible for, for purely physical things to be about anything. A physical thing can be caused by another physical thing, but it can't be about another physical thing. Um, and however many purely physical things you put together in whatever a complicated arrangement, that doesn't suddenly buy you this quality of being about reality, or what's called intentionality. So he argues very strongly in the book, in the book that um, if we were purely physical things, we, we couldn't have thoughts about anything. And he's argued very strongly that we do have thoughts about things. Now, what conclusion follows from those two premises? That's right. If I'm just a physical thing, I can't have any thoughts about anything. I do have thoughts about things. So, he says, um, the problem here is to explain away the illusion that we have thoughts about things. We don't really have thoughts about things. It's, but it's not an April Fool's joke. He really means it. He, he, he says, so we don't have thoughts about things. Surprising how, how committed they are to it. Like, I, I had a conversation with some of the people from this, the University Atheist Society, and uh, they, I, I found this very interesting. I had a, quite a long conversation with them, and I sort of thought, thought out how can there be you know, a good moral system every every um, country has its own laws and everyone has their mm. own idea of you know one mm. man's good and there's another mm. man's evil and it's like is how can you get a perfect idea and they, they said you know about you saying the brain is just a pack of neurons or whatever mm. and they were saying oh someone's modeled a neuron on the computer it won't be long before we'll have you know a computer which works fully as a human brain yes um and we'll be able to have an artificial intelligence that will have a perfect morality and mm. tell everyone what to do and it'll work and, uh, and we'll all uh, we'll all obey the computer yeah, yeah. <laughs> yes yeah but that's it that's the, the strength of these these worldview assumptions particularly if then if they're not questioned or encouraged to be, to be questioned and that's why people can get annoyed when you question them mm. <laughs> particularly if that means you know i want to question this assumption because i want to approach how i'm thinking about my whole subject in a slightly different way than is the done is the done thing um which is why you have to be careful if you want if you want to do that um you know um part of the education is, is understanding the way that the discipline looks at it and being able to show you, yeah, I understand the theory and to be able to regurgitate it. But I think also to be able to, to know something about the, the, the arguments for and the arguments against it and to be able to critique and have an opinion upon that. And if push comes to shove to be able to say, well, and this is my opinion and for the following reasons. So uh, you haven't just unthinkingly bought into the subject or the assumptions or, you know, and, and, Really, men- mental health care as, as, a, as a science, they're not defining it at all as, as a sort of a way of caring for people. Well, or... Yeah, yeah, but in terms of, like, especially with like, the medical model, it's like, I think now there's trying to be a push away from that in terms of, like, you, you get presented with a patient who's hearing voices, mm. and a lot of the time doctors are very much like, I oh, will give you these drugs to stop mm. the voices. But now a lot of professionals are turning around and saying well where are these voices coming from surely hmm. we need to look at that rather than yes just, getting rid of the just symptom treating yeah. rather than yeah so I yeah think, uh, there's there are a lot of 
health care workers who would say, oh yeah, well, we just need medicine, and they're very mm. focused around mm. the medical model. Mm. So there's actually a battle within right. at the moment, yeah. within professions, because even on the ward you've got some of the staff saying, oh, let's just give medication, it's physical. Mm. But mm. you have other staff who are like, well, it's not... Yes. Yeah, and you can see how you can see how different worldview assumptions would would shape how you mm. approach that conversation. Uh, yeah, yeah. But there again, I mean, um, on talk I'm I'm hawking around quite a lot at the moment is is a talk looking at recent publications by atheist and agnostic thinkers who are questioning various elements of the materialistic worldview. So again, if I were wanting to question this reductionist kind of materialist understanding of what a person is in some area. Um, I think the canny way to do it would be to... I'd be reading up on people like Raymond Tallis's The Aping of Mankind, uh, who's an atheist thinker who's saying this reductionist view of humanity is, is wrong. Or, or Mary Ridgely, or... Um, you know, if I were questioning methodological naturalism, I'd be reading Bradley Monton, um, as well as some Christian philosophers of science. But I'd be, you know, getting my 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 sources um, so that I could show people: look, I, you 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 can't reject my critique of this just by by pointing out, oh well, you would think that, wouldn't you? You're one of those religious nuts, <laughs> you know? Because um, I think there's a, a a lot of that kind of um, prejudice, I guess, is is the word to to go for that one has to be uh, wise about how, how you do that conversation. But it's good that the, at least the conversation is there, so there's a, a legitimate sort of hook for you to yeah. engage with with it. Uh, yeah. I, I just attach myself from the subject quite a lot. So I study sociology. Mm. Mm. I look at a lot of like through like you say, religion's just created to oppress society mm. and it's just used to create a like create a consciousness. So I just kind of learn theories and just because I have to, you know, mm. I kind of put my beliefs into it much. Mm. Well, as I say, it's uh, it's good level kind of one of of subject understanding is. What am I being taught in this subject, showing that I understand, you know, the, the principles and the structure and so on of, of the subject that I'm that I'm being taught. But I uh, but I think if you don't want to be unwittingly influenced by worldly ways of thinking about things, or you don't want to suddenly come across a, a sort of tension. A spiritual tension generated by that um, to actually avail yourself of the, of, of the resources of of thinking that through from the ground up in a, in a Christian way. Um, you know, there are Christian sociologists. Um, there are um, people like Peter Berger, um, name springs to mind, or um, uh, you know, to um, actually think. Well, how how would I do sociology? from a Christian worldview basis and, and how would I wisely and sensibly um, you know, take issue with some of the non-Christian assumptions and way of viewing people or uh, approaching whatever within a discipline um, and I think if, if you do that it's good for your own spiritual health, spiritual health but it's good for your academic kind of health as well 
um, because um, although I've I've been you know saying it's important to be wise how you approach these things, I I, I do think that good good tutors, good professors, recognise um, uh, take interest in in those students who show that they're investing enough in the subject to 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 be thinking about it from the ground up and to be questioning things in a in an academically legitimate way. Um, not if they're just being sort of awkward for the sake of it. Um, but if, if you're showing, well, that's, you know, this is a really interesting approach to the subject, but I've been reading so-and-so. He might not be on the reading list, but, you know, if he's a published, proper thinker in the field or whatever, and saying, I've been reading what, what she says about it or whatever, and bringing that into a paper or a discussion or, or something, they're like, ooh, ooh, extra credit. Yeah, they're really, they're really thinking about it. Um, and not just sort of being spoon-fed by the minimum amount of information you need to learn through the lectures in order to jump through the hoops of the exam to get on to the next bit of the module kind of kind of thing. Um, yeah. Um, you said something about the beginning is that how as Christians we should like maybe work as hard as we like do as well as we can in our degree. Mm. Well I'm not sure if you said that but maybe mm. firstly like is that is that the case? Should we strive to be like the top of our of our class and whatnot and if and if that is true, how do we balance that with like stuff like outreach, Christian union, mm, mm. going out? Because if you're spending all your time trying to talk to people about Jesus, and then <laughs> you're not there for that much time to study your degree. <laughs> <laughs> right? Yeah, yeah. Good, good questions. Um, so I, I don't think the standard you should set yourself is okay. I'm going to try and be top of the class. I, I think the standard yeah. you should set yourself is. I'm, I'm going to try and work at this and do as well as I can at it and, yeah. and, and not give second best because I'm not just doing this for me, I'm doing this for Jesus. Um, and so I'm going, to be, uh, I'm going to be his disciple in my academic life of the mind as much as I am his disciple when I'm on and out, out or when I'm going to see you or whatever. Um, you are at this time of life uh, privileged to be here uh, for the specific purpose of of an education. So I do think there's a sense in which that should come first, not to the exclusion of all other things. All work and no play makes Jack a dull boy, and uh, you know there's, these these sayings are there for a reason, um, and that, that in, in, includes the whole of your spiritual life not just your academic life of the mind but you know you're doing in your attitudes and your extracurricular activities and so on um so make some space for that but but the the main point that you're here for is the education you know you have a whole life uh, ahead of you to go on the mission field or whatever this is you know university is not an opportunity to go on a mission where you also on the side do a bit of learning and get a degree okay it's an opportunity for you to be the best disciple of Jesus getting a degree that you can, which will mean, of course, that you'll you know, help out with the mission week <laughs> you know, and, and plan your timetable accordingly. Uh, but I think that, that's the kind of order of, of, of priority. Um, you know, and in, uh, I think it might also be interesting to, to talk about sort of giving and things in this context as well. 
because unlike the days when I'm so old I went to university, I was one of the last cohorts who still actually received money from my local government for going to university. I know now you are giving them money for the pleasure of going to university and the pleasure of being in debt for a long time afterwards unless you get a job that allows you to pay off very quickly or whatever. Um, so uh, I think that should have an impact on how people think about giving as a student to the church and things. I, th I think, um, you know, it's, it's not wise to deliberately just get yourself more and more into debt, biblically speaking. Um, think more in terms of giving your, your time and your efforts. And it, it, it's more to do with, you know, do you, how are you spending the time doing what? Um, uh, you know, how, how much how much down the pub how much TV how much whatever <laughs> in, in terms of that kind of giving stuff I've always kind of thought of rightly or wrongly like if there's any money that is like free for me so I've given it like yeah I give yeah. some of it away but if it's like a loan I've always thought well yeah and that loan is for a specific yeah. purpose as well isn't so it whether it be like your student yeah. loan or whatever I've always thought well I'm going to pay this back Yes. Is this the best use of it, giving it away, or should I be using it for like buying food and stuff? But that's just my thoughts on it. Particularly yeah, university, yeah. I've found myself thinking, actually, I really don't have a lot of money to give away mm. at all. Mm. But what do I have? Actually, I actually have quite a lot of free time. So yeah. That's what mm. I'm give. Yeah. Yeah. So you know, don't don't uh, you know? I don't know if this is controversial or not, but don't don't think. Yeah, I've got to, I've got to give ten percent of my student loan to the church. <laughs> <laughs> I think I think that's probably not the right way to think about it. I suggest, but yeah, think: Do I volunteer my time once a month to the soup kitchen, or to help with the Sunday school, or um, to be welcome, welcoming and put the chairs out, or, or whatever? And there are lots of other ways you can support um, the, the church and the CU and so on, um, aside from. Uh, any guilt trips anyone wants to lay lay on you at this stage in life about money? With the tithe thing, isn't that like saying not to do that because you don't have that much money? I've heard the idea that you don't you don't give a tithe because the money doesn't belong to you in the first place. You're not. It's the idea that if say I if Tom goes on a holiday for a couple of weeks, give me his car, I have a great time in it, and when he comes back, I'm not giving his the car to no. him. I'm just returning what already belongs to him so yeah i'm i'm not sure if i i think we can st i think that 10 percent still belongs to god maybe i think if you give when you haven't got much you're a lot more likely to give when you've got a lot so mm. kind of gains in terms of habits of yeah, of, yeah, of, of giving but i don't think you give it time. I, I think i think yeah. Think yeah. Well to to but I, th I think yeah i i think this is i think it is the issue is complified if that's even a word, complicated, Compl made more complicated, <laughs> complexified. No, yeah, that's the word. Buy buy the whole loan for a specific purpose um, thing. Um, but I I, I I I take your point about about habits, um, but you can apply that to the other types of of, of giving as well. But it was also. The, the general fiscal res responsibility of if I'm in if I'm in debt to someone, and I should be paying that debt back to them, do I put off the day when I can pay that back to them, who I owe, 
by spending the money on things that they didn't give me for. You see? <laughs> so, if you're in debt, should you, should you not give money to the church before you're out of debt? I mean, I'm not... Well, I think you'd have to structure this with... Uh, yeah, this is... It's tricky, isn't it? But I, well, I would think in terms of structuring it with the person who's going about if they're giving you a date where you have to pay that back, I think you would be looking at your finances and saying, um, will giving so, so much to such and such mean that I'm I'm living sensibly but I'm I'm delaying paying this debt off or will I be able to pay pay off my debts and keep health you know health and half together and give this money to the church now that might mean that I don't buy my sky sports package or that I eat less chocolate or half as many pints down the pub on a Friday night or whatever but what's the order of priorities? But I think you know you've been giving money for a particular purpose that you owe that you owe someone you should be paying off, and it's not good to get more in debt. You you need to to live at a reasonable level, and then you you think about giving and and, and setting up good financial habits. And part of good financial habits is is giving for church. And part of good financial habits is okay. not getting into debt deliberately and, and, and not you know not and not not giving back to people what you owe them. Yeah. So you have to balance those against one another, I think, rather than just take a sort of right, I'm going to whatever it means, I'm gonna give ten percent of everything that's coming in to the local church. You know, because that's what I you know, that's the rule. Because it, it's in a sense it's not it's not about the rules, but God loves a cheerful giver. Give what each has decided, uh, says, says Paul. You know, it, it's it's not like legalistic. It's about good stewardship and about loving other people as yourself with your money. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, yeah, but uh, I, I I do sometimes think that the adults who sort of been through university when days were different. <laughs> Don't don't quite necessarily think through this this com- complexification of the whole. I'm doing this on a loan and in debt situation uh, of today. Uh, yeah.